Well, let us uh, turn uh, again in our Bibles this evening to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, and uh, we're on page 950 in the ESV, and uh, this evening we're looking at verses 1 through 20. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopolis. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlagion, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet uh, Philologus, Julia, Neuros, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, many people uh, enjoy doing genealogies and uh, tracing their own family history of being able to find connections that people have, uh, both in their own lifetime, but also of tracing back uh, family connections as well uh, across time. And as we turn to our Bibles, uh, we find many genealogies. There are many lists of names in the Bible. And we might look at those lists and we might wonder, uh, what are we to make of those lists? But they're actually very important. 
they show us something of the bond that exists between people. And they accent for us the, the historicity of uh, the events of the Bible. That the Bible is not a legend and it does not present itself as merely a legend, a story that exists in a vacuum. But rather these are events that took place in history. And these are people uh, who are connected to the past and they help us understand uh, our place in relation to those times and events. This evening we're coming to a list and we might wonder to ourselves, uh, I don't know any of these people that lived in Rome and many of their names I struggle even to pronounce. Uh, What difference does this list have for me today? But this list is an important list because as Paul is writing uh, to the church in Rome here, as he is concluding, he is wrapping up his letter to the church in Rome, he is sending greetings to them. But as John Fesco says, what, John, what Paul is actually doing is he is referring to the church of Rome in a particular way. And what John Fesco highlights is, is that really what we see here is what constitutes as a new covenant genealogy. He's not simply listing uh, a list of random names. He's not simply giving us random people that he's heard about but rather that Paul is addressing the church of Rome and he is showing the bond that exists between them. These are people who may feel and may sound like they come from very different backgrounds, and they are. And yet Paul is able to show how they are united together in one family. And that is important as we come together this evening to see that Paul here is uh, describing the church of Rome as a family. One of the things that you see again and again in this list, and we don't have time to go over each of the details of this greeting, but one thing that you do notice as you go through that list is how he addresses people in uh, the Church of Rome. And again and again and again, Paul identifies them in a particular way. He identifies them by the label of in Christ or in the Lord. And so you turn, for instance, to verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. Or you turn, for instance, to verse 7, where it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Or you take, for instance, uh, what it says in verse 11. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who, were, uh, who belong to the family of Narcissus. And in verse 12, greet those workers of the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. What do you see emerging there? As Paul is describing these people, he's showing them in relation to or in connection with the Lord Jesus. What is it that bonds all these people together is the fact that they all have a common faith. They all have a united uh, relationship with the Lord Jesus. They are all living in union with Christ. They have all come to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is important as, as we look at this, what Paul is saying about them. We live in a day and an age when many people feel the weight of that sense of identity. Who am I? How do I identify myself? And people try all sorts of ways of trying to identify themselves by what I'm really good at, by what I'm passionate about, 
uh, by what I like to do with my time, my hobbies, and things like this. But Paul is really rooting his identity and their identity in something that is more transcendent, something that is enduring, because these other things may come and go in life. Uh, We may not always be good at basketball. We may not always enjoy that hobby. But our identity in Christ is something that is stable. It is something that is permanent. And so here Paul is trying to shape the way that they talk and think about one another. They are those who live in relation to the Lord Jesus. And that is fundamental to their identity. That's part of the reason why Christians embrace that uh, label of Christian, uh, that they are those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And now they live by that label. So as Paul is sending these greetings to the church, this evening we want to see that what he's doing is he is, he is sending greetings, but those greetings are really an expression of uh, a reality that has taken hold in the church of Rome. Those who have been welcomed by God in Christ have been brought into the family of God. And those who are brought into the family of God are brothers and sisters. And they are to express love to one another. And so this evening we want to see how Paul himself expresses love to the church in Rome. And he does it in two ways. The first, in verses 1 through 16, he does it by sending greetings. He is expressing his love. Uh, for the church in Rome by sending those greetings to them. But then secondly, he expresses his love for the church of Rome by warning or by guarding the church of Jesus Christ. So first we have uh, the expression of love by way of greetings. Back uh, Back in chapters 14 and 15, You remember that one of the things Paul was laboring to emphasize was how do Christians, with all of their differences, work together and live together where those differences are uh, abiding. People have differences of conviction, uh, not on matters of sin and righteousness or obedience and disobedience, but there are differences. And Paul is saying that what you have to remember is, is that If God has welcomed them, so you are to welcome them as well. Uh, That he told them that uh, they were to recognize that if God has welcomed them, they were to acknowledge them uh, as uh, part of the family of God. And in chapter 15, he ultimately points out that together they are to be united, that with one voice they are to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God is their heavenly Father. And that as one people, they are to give glory to God in and through uh, their common confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. So Paul is encouraging them to see the fact that they are part of the one family of God. They have been adopted as children of God. They have God as their father, and they now have one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 16, then, is really Paul giving expression to that reality. He's showing that what he has said actually shapes the way that he lives. Think about this. This is Paul uh, from Sicily, a Jew, a man who would have prided himself of being an Israelite and someone who would have 
lived uh, separate or distinct from the Gentiles, the nations. And now here is Paul celebrating and exalting in these uh, Gentiles who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, that he considers them and welcomes them uh, and uh, expresses his love for them. And he does this in a number of ways. One of the ways that you see it in this list is how he uh, uses a common refrain of addressing people as my beloved. Uh, You notice that, for instance, in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert in the province of Asia. Uh, The first fruits. Paul is excited to say, here's the first of many that will come from this province to faith in the Lord Jesus. And, and he celebrates the fact that this man has come to faith in the Lord Jesus. But he identifies him as my beloved. And this is not the only one. He goes on and he speaks of others like Amplius and Stachys and Persis also by that designation, my beloved. And so Paul is expressing his love for them. He even mentions that the mother of Rufus was like a mother to him. So Paul has affection for these people. He, he has a sincere love for them. And he expresses that love in and through these greetings. That expression of love, though, is mutual. Uh, back in verses 3 and 4, you remember that he sends greetings to Prisca and Aquila. Uh, this a couple, a Jewish couple, who had come to believe in the Lord Jesus, uh, met Paul. They met Paul in Corinth. And you read of that in the book of Acts. Uh, In the days of Claudius, the emperor Claudius, he banished all the Jews from Rome for a period of time. And as a result, uh, this couple went to Corinth, and that's where they met with Paul. And Paul here uh, celebrates the fact that they expressed their love for him by risking their own necks for him, for which he and others give thanks for. We don't even know how they did this, when they did this, or where. But they obviously did something that was at great risk to themselves in order to deliver and to rescue Paul. So there is that expression of love that is uh, uh, highlighted um, in the way that others have acted. The same could be said about Apelles in verse 10, a man who was approved in Christ. That is, he was someone who was tested and who came through in his time of testing. So it is... uh, These greetings here are given expression of love uh, between the saints. Paul expresses his love. He calls many uh, his beloved. He highlights the love of Prisca and Aquila towards him and how he gives thanks for them. He also, uh, as you notice in verse 16, uses that language of greet one another with a holy kiss. And uh, this is actually not the only time in the New Testament that uh, a letter ends with that exhortation. Uh, There are several letters in the New Testament that call on Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. And Christians in the first century lived in a world where that was the norm. It was regular for people upon greeting or upon departure or when there was reconciliation uh, for there to be uh, um, a a kiss involved. And uh, so Paul um, uh, speaks on that level uh, that they would uh, carry out or that they would give greetings to one another as an expression of their love. The added description of holy qualifies what Paul is referring to. 
He's not referring to anything sensual, but rather an expression of love of Christ that is mutually shared. So Christians were being exhorted to give expression to a reality that they believe to be true. We are loved of God and we share in that bond of love. And that is symbolically expressed by uh, the act or by the symbol of uh, a kiss that took place. And what is really at the heart of what Paul is saying here is, is not the, the act so much, but what the act is conveying. It's possible for a person to give expression or to greet someone uh, in a way that is not genuine. Uh, but what is being meant is, is that there would be a, a sincere or a genuine expression of love uh, being conveyed and expressed to others. And so uh, uh, as we think about this exhortation, what is ultimately important is that moral duty of showing love towards one another in a genuine way. Much like what Jesus does with the washing of the disciples' feet. Uh, one could say, well, if we simply did the act, then it would fulfill the command. But really the command is getting at beyond that to the idea of uh, humble service and of loving one another. So in all these greetings, what is highlighted is an expression of love for the saints. He calls many of them his beloved. Uh, he speaks about how Prisca and Aquila had risked their not lives for him. He talks about how they are to uh, greet one another in a genuine and a loving way uh, with uh, an embrace. Uh, all of this expressing the love that they are to have for one another because of their common bond in Christ. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, if we have come to know of the love of God in Jesus Christ, then we should give expression to that even to one another. But these greetings that Paul gives, the significance of them uh, is, is that they express love and they express a bond between one another. But there's also many striking features about these greetings. And again, we can only look at them in passing. But one of the striking features is the way that Paul addresses so many women. Why is that important? It's important because many people want to criticize the Bible as being anti-woman, uh, that it is against women, um, or that Paul himself is a misogynist. He's a woman hater. And people will make that accusation because Paul writes uh, to Timothy that he says, I do not permit a woman to to exercise authority or to teach. And so many have uh, concluded that Paul is being oppressive towards women on that account. But when you come to the, this greeting here to the church in Rome, Paul here is highlighting his affection and his appreciation uh, for the women that make up the church in Rome. And in the early church, women made up a substantial part uh, of the church and the Roman church is no different. Out of the 26 names that are listed here in Romans, nine of them are women. And so Paul here is evidently seeing that there is a way in which women can be of great help and of great support and of great effectiveness in the church, even if they are not occupying positions of teaching or of exercising authority. Evidently, these women were all very active. And Paul even points out many of them he describes as workers. They are those who have labored in the Lord. And so Paul here is not thinking of the church as something that is only the work of a few individuals. 
He's seeing many individuals who support and who cause the church to flourish. But these greetings are really sparked by what he says in the opening verses. You notice in verse 1 and 2, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints. Now, the many things we could point out here. Uh, Phoebe uh, is a Gentile by name. Uh, Phoebe retained her name even after she became a Christian. Uh, Phoebe is a name that has a, uh, a connection back to uh, I, uh, the idols or to the pagan goddesses. But Phoebe uh, retained that name even when she became uh, a Christian. But she is described as a servant of the church of Sancria. Sancria is uh, a neighboring city to, the, uh, to Corinth. And so this is where she was a servant, where she was serving in the church. Many people have highlighted that the word there for servant, and you'll notice the footnote, uh, that it is the same word as the English word that we use for deacon. And many people wonder, uh, does this mean that Phoebe was a deaconess? Was she a female deacon in the early church? What we have to bear in mind is, is first that the word servant or deacon has both a narrow meaning and had a more general meaning. Uh, that it could be used in either sense. So, for instance, in the previous chapter in Romans 15, Jesus Christ himself is described as a servant. Uh, but when it describes Jesus as a servant there, it is not saying that Jesus occupied the office of a deacon, but rather that he served in a general sense. Uh, so we have to recognize uh, there's a broad uh, usage and there is a narrow usage of the word. We also have to recognize that Paul himself does say that a deacon must be the husband of one wife. And so Paul himself seems to limit uh, the idea of a deacon uh, to uh, men. And that is debated as well, but there's no reason in and of itself here in Romans to press that uh, to mean the narrow uh, sense of an office or a position uh, in the church. And, but that is something that uh, Christians uh, debate and uh, differ on. So she is called uh, a servant here. But we might understand her work of serving uh, by the context itself. Because as it goes on to say, it says that she was a patron, uh, that is a woman that of, uh, of means. She was someone that was able to support others in the church in Sancria. Uh, she was uh, someone who was able to assist. Uh, she was able to assist. And now Paul says to welcome her in a way that is worthy of all the saints and help her as she has helped others. If she is a woman of uh, of means, if she is someone who was able to assist other Christians, one of the most natural ways to understand that would be in the realm of hospitality. And as Phoebe is going to Rome, that they, Paul is really asking the Church of Rome to be hospitable to her as she has been hospitable to others. And you already begin to see how she was a servant in the Church of Sancria. But all of this is sparked by the role that Phoebe has. We said that Phoebe was going to Rome. And the most likely reason for that is, is that Phoebe is the one who is carrying this epistle. 
to the church of Rome. That's why she's going. Paul, writing from most likely Corinth, is sending Phoebe to the church of Rome. And in the ancient world, anytime anyone was on an important errand uh, to bring a message, they would have a letter of commendation that would uh, be used to support and to certify their, their work and their mission and their person. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, Phoebe is the one that I've sent. And so receive uh, the message that I've written from and that has been passed on from her uh, as a given from me. And so uh, here we see again uh, how uh, Phoebe was active in the church and serving the church and uh, helping the church. That's one of the features that we see in this greeting as he expresses uh, his appreciation for the church. But there are other uh, features or other striking features about this greeting. There's also uh, what we've highlighted, the diversity of the Church of Rome. For instance, you look at verse 9. Uh, it says in verse 9, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Urbanus, as the name might imply, as you might have guessed, uh, is a name that has uh, urban in its root. It's a city dweller. And uh, so here is someone who is living in the city. But in that same list, uh, we are told uh, that there is uh, others who are country dwellers. And uh, uh, that is what Stachys was. Stachys means ear of corn. And so most likely, Stachys was someone that lived in the country himself. But both urban dweller and country dweller come together in the same church. Very different lifestyles, very different ways of life, and yet they can live uh, together as family. Similarly, in verse 14, uh, it says uh, Hermes is mentioned. And Hermes is a slave name, uh, frequently cited in uh, the early uh, church. Uh, it is a slave name, and those of Aristobulus's house in verse 10 were most likely slaves too. And so you have slaves uh, in the church of Rome. But in that same list, you have Herodian being mentioned in verse 11. And most likely that is someone of a member of Herod's family. So again, you have diverse uh, uh, backgrounds, people from very different parts of society. Uh, people from the city, people from the country, people who are uh, um, of political uh, um, positions and people who are living as slaves. But their, their social distinctives uh, are not what defines them, but rather what brings them together is this belief about Jesus, and it's what unites them in as one family. So there's a diversity to the church uh, that pulls them together. There's also the Catholicity. Uh, in verse 16, notice that Paul says, after he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, he says, all of the churches of Christ greet you. Again, the church of Rome is to remember and to to realize that they're part of a, a bond, a family much bigger than what they see. They are part of the redeemed community of all of those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus. And so there is a universality uh, to the, the family of God uh, that is uh, to be celebrated. And so as Paul is expressing his greetings here, as he is uh, expressing his love uh, for the church of Rome, 
uh, as he highlights them as his beloved and the importance of showing affection to one another. Paul is celebrating the fact that God's grace has uh, taken hold of many, both male and female, both urban dweller and country dweller, both uh, those of a political significance and slaves. Uh, he is highlighting uh, the great diversity in the church. But the last thing that is striking about this list is there in verse uh, 13 that we want to draw attention to. It says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, when it says chosen in the Lord, uh, it could be just saying that he is part of God's elect. But it seems that Paul is implying a little bit more than that. Because when you look at all of the descriptions that Paul makes in this list, he says many of them were beloved. And no doubt all of them were beloved, but he mentions that many of them were beloved. He mentions that many of them labored in the Lord. And uh, presumably we could say that that was a characteristic shared by many. But here as he speaks of Rufus, he singles out Rufus in particular as chosen in the Lord. We could apply that to every one of the people that is mentioned. All who believe in the Lord uh, Jesus are part of God's chosen people. But he singles out Rufus in particular and only Rufus in this list as chosen in the Lord. Why? The answer to that question seems to come from the Gospel of Mark. You remember in our mornings together, we have been highlighting that the Gospel of Mark from its uh, inception has been recognized as the gospel that was written to the Romans. Now, if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, you know that Mark's gospel is the shortest of all of the gospels. And as the shortest of all of the gospels, usually Mark gives us the least detail in his accounts of the things that took place. But when we come to Mark chapter 15, it tells us uh, about the events uh, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And if you want, we can turn to Mark chapter 15, and it tells us there <clears throat> about uh, the death of Jesus. But as that was taking place, his crucifixion, it tells us, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. This is mentioned in the other Gospels as well. But it says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Mark, as the Gospel writer, who tends to be the briefest and the shortest, adds an interesting detail there. He tells us who carried the cross of Jesus. It was Simon. It was Simon of Cyrene. But then he goes one step further and he says, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would Mark insert that detail unless Mark thought that was a detail that would be meaningful for the church in Rome? That they would be able to make the connection between Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus, and who Rufus is. That Simon is the father of Rufus. And now it seems, as we come to Romans, that Paul, as he is addressing Rufus, he is addressing the one who is the son of the bearer of the cross of Jesus, Simon's son, Rufus. And here, as he is addressing him, uh, he is reminding him that he is the one who is chosen in the Lord. 
Simon of Cyrene came into Jerusalem. You remember it said he came in from out of country. He came into Jerusalem most likely to participate in the feasts. He had no intention. He wasn't concerned. He wasn't uh, coming for Jesus. He was coming in from out of the country. But it seems that he was uh, confronted with what was happening to Jesus. And we are told he was compelled. That is, he was forced to carry the cross of Christ. And as a result, he was confronted with what God's works were. The salvation from sin in and through the death of Jesus. And evidently, this event had an impact on Simon. And not only on Simon, but on his entire family. So that they lived as a result in light of what Jesus had done. Because they had been confronted with God's work of salvation. And so what had caused, uh, what was true there of, uh, of Rufus, of Simon of Cyrene, is true of all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus. What is it that caused all these people to be united together? What is it that caused all these people to have a love for one another? It is the fact that they had been confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord had intervened in their life and uh, caused them to see his grace and mercy. They were arrested by the fact that God has acted and it forever changed them. And now they live by that label, chosen in the Lord. Can you imagine being in the church of Rome and there's Rufus? And Rufus can tell you the story that his dad told him. How he carried Jesus' cross and how he witnessed the things that were taking place. How he knew and he learned that this man had done nothing wrong. And yet here he was thinking over these matters. And then the resurrection takes place and he is telling his family what has happened. And now here is Rufus as a living testimony in the church of Rome. And as Paul is addressing and greeting Rufus, a living inheritor of the witnesses of Jesus' work, Paul addresses him as one who is chosen. There's a living testimony right there. Go ask Rufus what happened. As we think about that, have we come to realize the work of God ourselves? That God has confronted us with what he has done in Jesus Christ. Have we come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of sinners? So he sends these greetings to uh, the church in Rome. The greetings, what is it doing? It's expressing his love. Uh, the love that is to exist between the saints. And we see uh, the bond that brings them together because they have uh, been changed by God's grace. And we see the makeup of this church, a, a diverse church, but one that is characterized by God's sovereign grace. But there's something else uh, that gives expression to the love of the church in these verses. In verses 17 and uh, following, uh, we see the love expressed uh, by way of warning or by way of guarding the church. In verse 17, we see the final exhortation of Paul to the Romans. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. That's a strong way of uh, response, isn't it? Paul says to avoid them for two reasons. One, because 
They do not serve our Lord Jesus, but they serve their own passions, their own appetites. They serve themselves. And secondly, because ultimately they could deceive the naive. There's a danger of allowing them a foothold in the church. There's a danger of accepting or tolerating them if they're going to turn others away. And so he exhorts them uh, to avoid them. And he does this not as a way of rebuke. Uh, Paul is not saying that they have messed up or that they have uh, failed in this regards. But rather, as he goes on to say in verse 19, it's because they're doing so well. For your obedience is known, but don't let your guard down. You need to be on guard against false doctrine that would turn people away from what is true and cause them uh, to turn to what is false. Burke Parsons, an American pastor, makes an interesting point. Uh, and an important corrective uh, to our churches today. He says, in many churches today, it is considered worse to judge evil than to do evil. In many churches today, it is considered worse to judge evil than to do evil. Don't, Don't be so focused on saying what is right and what is wrong. Don't be so focused on trying to guard the good deposit. And what Burke Parsons is saying is is that the church has become distorted in their priorities. Part of loving the church is by guarding the truth, of being concerned about false doctrine. Part of loving one another is protecting one another from dangerous teachings that would lead us away from the truth, that would cause them to stumble as a result in their faith or from the faith. And so Paul here not only expresses love for the church in his greetings, but he's also expressing his love uh, by telling the church uh, uh, of how to guard the church by way of warning. But ultimately, he gives them uh, a guarding uh, by way of promise. In verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul is there alluding to that ancient promise in Genesis 3 that we read, that the seed of the woman would crush or bruise the head of the serpent, and the head of the the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. That is something that was fulfilled when Jesus came into this world. He is the seed of the woman who came and did battle against Satan and defeated him at the cross, as Colossians highlights. But there will be a fuller outworking of that at the end of the age, when God's victory over Satan will be manifested when Jesus returns. And so Paul here is giving that comfort that the struggle for truth and the expression of love is something that will be fully established one day in the future. Because there will come a time when there is no more false teaching that is threatening the church. And there will be no more division that prevents love from being realized. That heaven is a place of love, as Jonathan Edwards said. And the church will be able to live in love and in truth. And so we live not with a vain hope, but with a confident hope. Knowing that God's grace has been shown to us, we look forward and live in the confident outworking of God's purposes. Paul ends his letter then by sending uh, greetings to the church in Rome. Those greetings show a love for uh, believers who had come to share the love of God themselves. The church isn't simply a club. 
The church is a community that has been transformed by God's grace. And they are called to give expression to that love in the way that they treat one another. In the way that we express that to one another. And in the way that we seek to protect one another. That's what Paul's doing here. He sends his greetings because he loves them. And he warns them because he loves them. And we are to be led in his truth. Love and truth will prevail because God's work will be established.